could I take the liberty to say how overwhelming it is to worship this morning after walking in a land that has over 300 million gods that do not satisfy. The futility of prayer, well, prayer, prayer wills and stupas and the futility of working prayer beads. And then to come and gather with my family and worship the one true God is overwhelming. How good it is for brothers and sisters to dwell together and to worship together. May we never take that for granted. Our scripture this morning is Isaiah chapter 9. Might have, should have had someone else read this morning. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. <clears throat> but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zerbalim and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're thrilled to be able to celebrate Advent together. Advent is uh, something that it's not necessary, maybe, that we do this together, but it is good to take time out together and focus on that particular uh, work of our God to take on flesh and come to the earth. And it's that very thing that has uh, spurred on and been the source of great meditations, great pieces of art, pieces of work throughout history. I mean, you can think about, pick the, the year, you know, growing up, your most popular song of your time growing up, and like that song 
or at least the songs of my time, had no real substance because they weren't about something that was super meaningful, that really had some lasting value. And so they're forgotten so quickly. And yet we still have songs and pieces of artwork and all these things that that are surrounding this very event that, that is stuck in our hearts and minds as believers, but, but even in our culture at large, there's something a little bit deeper, a little bit stronger to hold people in, even if they don't see these things for themselves as of great worth. And one of those things that you've probably heard is the work of Handel. He is the, uh, the one who wrote The Messiah, and it's this famous piece that's often played around this time as it speaks of the, the birth of, of Christ. And, and there's this famous piece within that, that that uses these words, the very words of, of Isaiah chapter 9. And those things stick and stay around because of the gravity and the weight and the importance of this very event of God taking on flesh and coming to dwell among us. And so God speaks in Isaiah 9, and he speaks in Isaiah 9 of this one that we're going to look at who is going to give deliverance. And so Isaiah 9 is of deliverance promise, and that deliverance promised will not only be just promise, it will be deliverance presented in the person of Jesus as we see it fulfilled in Christ. So Isaiah, he speaks in a time in Isaiah chapter 9 of of great fear and uncertainty, maybe not too different than how many of us feel each and every day as we navigate this world that we're in, as we walk in even to this room. And so what we need to do is we need to hear of Advent, we need to hear of deliverance, not only that it was promised, but is now presented to us in Christ. Israel, as God's own people, was to be a a holy nation, set apart, marked off from others. They were to be a light to other nations. They were to be a people that were compelling to other nations to come and see what's going on because they are living their life under this good reign of their good God. And so the light should shine out as they live under their good God, under his good reign and good rule, and be compelling to the nations. But instead, where we find ourselves in the book of Isaiah is Israel looks a lot more like those nations than unlike those nations. They look a lot more like the people in the land that they removed than they do a particular, peculiar, godlike, holy people set apart. They worship, and their worship doesn't look distinct, it looks like the nations. Their morality that's supposed to be pure and holy as God is holy looks a lot more like the morality of the nations. Their hope and their dependence is the same kind of hope and dependence that the nations have. Their trust, what they're counting on and relying upon for their very life and existence looks a lot like what the nations are trying to count on. They're they're trying to put all their hope and dependence and reliance in, in nations and in armies and in kings and in power and in might. And so they were an unfaithful nation, unfaithful to the covenant that God had cut and made with them, unfaithful to their God. And so God, in the midst of that covenant breakdown and the breach that stood between God and them in the breach of the covenant, God calls forth prophets. And these prophets, they speak into the breakdown. They speak into the breach between God and man. And so they spoke of coming judgment. That they had disobeyed God and that God was going to judge them for their disobedience. They send out the call for repentance because of the covenant breaks. And many, like Isaiah, point forward to something to come. To deliverance that was promised. At the time of Isaiah, Israel is a divided kingdom. You have the northern kingdoms and the southern kingdoms. You have Judah in the south and and what's referred to as Israel in the north. And and at the time of Isaiah, this great superpower, unlike the world had known up to that point, is taking over. And that's Assyria. 
They are a superpower in their area, and they are stronger than any kingdom that they'd seen before. And the king of Judah, his name is Ahaz. And Ahaz is threatened. His kingdom of Judah is threatened. We, we find a little bit about this in 2 Kings chapter 16. Then Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem. All right, so this is Israel, the northern tribes, waging war on the southern tribes, what we call Judah. It's not a good picture. They've teamed up with Syria. And so now that you can see all, all the, the, the turmoil that's already present here, that what used to be a united nation is now torn apart and at war with one another. And so they come to wage war on Jerusalem, and they besieged Ahaz, but they couldn't conquer it. So Ahaz is faced with armies besieging his city, the holy city of David, the city of Jerusalem, right? Like, here it is. And he needs help. And he's the king who sits in the line of David, who reigns in Jerusalem. Like, this is your moment, Ahaz. This is your David moment to stand up and say, right? Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we, no, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. This is his moment for that. It's his moment to, to Psalm 27, right? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? Verse 3 goes on to say, though armies, armies encamp against me, I'm not worried about them. It's they who are going to fall. This is his David moment. But instead we read of Ahaz, verse 2, in 2 Kings 16, that he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God as his father David had done. There's no Psalm 20 moment coming for him. There's no Psalm 27 moment coming for him. We skip down and we read his response in verse 6. At the time that... Reason, the king of Syria, recovered Elath for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Elath. And the Edomites came to Elath where they dwell to this day. And so Ahaz, he sends out messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, the great superpower of the time, saying, I'm your servant and your son. Kings were to be, in, in a unique sense, the son of God, reigning and ruling in God's stead, like for God, for over these people. And he says, no, I'll be your son to Assyria. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and the gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house, and he sent him presents to the king of Assyria to sweeten the deal. And the king of Assyria listened to him. And the king of Assyria marched up against Damascus, and he took it, carrying its people captive to Kir, and he killed reason. Ahaz is... Calling for help. And he doesn't say, you know, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. His help comes from Assyria, a, a greater kingdom than, than Israel and Syria put together. And they're all too anxious to go ahead and take them out. And even to, like, hey, while we're there, why don't we just gobble up a little bit of the land of Judah while we're going that direction? So instead of following in the footsteps of his father, David, and trusting in the Lord and looking to him for Relief, he looks to Assyria. And Ahaz, having been delivered by Assyria, saved, rescued by Assyria, you notice the language that he used? What does he do when he's rescued? He doesn't fall down and worship God. He worships his Savior. He worships his Deliverer, his Rescuer. 
And, and what is he going to do? He's going to lead Judah, the people of God, in worshiping Assyria, just like the Assyrians worship. He's going to worship like them. And he's going to lead his people to do the same. And that's what the 2 Kings 16 talks about. He starts leading and changing the ways that they do worship to look like the Assyrians. He's worshiping his Savior. He's worshiping like the Assyrians. And because of this, God's judgment is pronounced upon Ahaz, upon Judah. And God is going to use, of all nations, Assyria to pour this judgment out. And it's this imminent judgment in the background, and with Assyria's dark shadow creeping over the promised land, looming over Judah and over Ahaz, that Isaiah says this in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. That those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you and with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. No longer necessary anymore. Isaiah speaks of great things here, right? Light in the midst of darkness. Hope in the midst of uh, a complete distress where they're dwelling in this place that's overwhelmed with darkness. There's joy spoken into the midst of that. He speaks of deliverance and a great sense of worship and going on here. There's joy, the end of oppression, the end of war. Right? Judgment's going to come, but Isaiah speaks of this Something different to come as well. This something else that's going to deliver them from out of their judgment. Judgment is imminent and Assyria's dark shadow is looming. But Isaiah says that there's something else at work as well. There's light, there's hope, there's deliverance. All of these things to come. Judgment is not then the final word for the people of God. So how are light and deliverance and hope and the end of war and oppression going to come about? Well, he says in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. He points to a child. A, a child is going to bring this light, this joy, this deliverance, this end of oppression, this end of war. A, a child. He is the one that is tied to the deliverance that Isaiah speaks of. And so often in the book of Isaiah, you find with promised deliverance, a child right there. In Isaiah chapter 7, there's this one who's going to come, a child of a virgin. In Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah speaks in names of his own children. It speaks of deliverance. Those names meant something more. In Isaiah chapter 11, there's this child who's, you know, there's this picture of the, the overturning of the curse. And the child is leading the procession and even kind of putting his hand over the, the adder's den where the, where the snakes dwell. It's like the, the curse is being reversed and the child is leading the way. And I like what one commentator says when he says of Isaiah again and again, when the prophet comes to the hearts of the means of deliverance, a childlike face peers out at us. And that's what we see in Isaiah chapter 9. When God speaks of this great deliverance, what is right there alongside it? Man, the face of a child. God's means of deliverance doesn't look like what they probably would have expected. We've got an overwhelming force an army bearing down on us we need arms 
We need people. We need chariots. We need horses. We might need a couple nations to join in with us so that we can be delivered. And instead, God's means of deliverance is not spoken of in that way at all. His means of deliverance looks childlike. And a childlike description of this deliverance keeps coming up in Isaiah. And so you've got to wonder, as, as Isaiah is speaking these things to a people that are probably not going to hear it, that was his commission, then what they're thinking of this promised deliverance. You think they were disappointed? My guess is that it probably looked a little puny. You keep talking of deliverance, and then you're talking about children. Assyria is knocking at our door. They're, they're knocking down our cities as they're coming towards Jerusalem, and you're talking about a child. Probably not what they hoped for. But there's a question that underlies all of the book of Isaiah that gives us the backdrop for even this passage, and the question is this. Who or what will they trust? Are they going to trust in God and His Word and this promised deliverance, or are they going to trust in the things of the world, like military might, like alliances with nations, like a special weapon that will destroy the enemy? What are they going to rely on? What are they going to trust in? Who are they going to trust? Notice where Isaiah points him, to a child. And he says this child is going to be born. That is like to say he's normal. Like every other person, he is going to be born. He's human. But this child is not just born, this is also one that is given. Verse 6, given. Now, that speaks of some sort of intentionality. An intentional intervening, and it's clearly implied, coming from the prophet, that the intentional intervention here of a son given is from God himself. God himself is intervening, and a child is born, and a son is given. The child will be normal, but it's God at work. This is God intervening on behalf of his people with a child born, very human, very normal, and a son that is given, a son. Perhaps... And I think it likely is so that he's alluding to passages like Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Where God has set up his anointed on the throne. He says to my son, today you're my son and I've begotten you. Psalm 2, 7. Or 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. Where, where God speaks to David and he tells him, I'm going to give you a son. He's going to rule in your line, on your throne. And his rule is going to be forever. I'm going to be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. I think that those both certainly fit the context of deliverance that's spoken of here in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 9. They have divine, the son given has divine overtones as it speaks in the context of deliverance. And so the deliverance promised is by means of a child, but that you can tell already as we're talking about a, a child that is born and a son that is given, a son that might be alluding to Psalm chapter 2 and 2 Samuel chapter 7. You're seeing that this Deliverance is coming from one that has room to be both fully man and to also be God. Strange. And he says that a child born and a son given and the government, verse 6, is going to be upon his shoulders. So this is one who is reigning and ruling. It is interesting, I think, that throughout this passage, he never uses the term king. Never calls him a king. Perhaps that's a shot at the monarchy of Israel and Judah, but there's never a king mentioned, but certainly this child is kingly. Here's government on his shoulders. He's reigning, he's ruling, he's a kingly figure. 
Other kings, other rulers, they put burdens on people. I think that's a little bit of the picture of verse 4. That they're giving the staff for the shoulder. They're giving the work out. They're putting uh, oppression and weight onto their people. Not this kingly figure. He doesn't do that. He goes the opposite direction. Other kings put burdens on. This one is willing to put it on himself and bear that burden. And he puts it right on his shoulders. Not, not carrying it around with his pinky, but on the shoulders where it can totally be held up. The government is on his shoulders. And he willingly puts it on himself. And this one that is given, this child that is born, is very unlike any other king and that he has been known as these names that he's going to give. And these names are are characterizing the king. Names are more than just syllables put together to to make something cool that their parents like to say. This name was, was a symbol like here's what he's going to be like. Here's what the core of his essence is going to be. And here are the names. There are four that are given. Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Wonderful. That word, wonder, is used of the acts of God in the Old Testament that are beyond human acts. They're distinctly the acts of God. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 20, God says that He's going to work wonders. Again, the wonder part of wonderful counselor has these tones of divinity of something only God can do and this one coming is going to be this wonderful counselor Ahaz he gets his counsel from some poor counselors that say hey Syria and Israel are attacking you here's what we need to do we know what we need to do God told them over and over again what you need to do If you're faced with threats, trust in me, I'm big enough to handle it. And here's what he does. He listens to the counselors who say, actually, it would be better if we got another nation in on this that was bigger and more powerful than them. And then we could win this thing. He listens to that poor counsel. He sought the world and not God. And he then counseled his nation toward idolatry. In, In 2 Kings chapter 16, listen to the counsel of Ahaz. He went and met with the king of Assyria, and he saw the altar that was at Damascus. And, the king, and king Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest a model of the altar and its pattern, exact in all its details. Let's do that. Actually, God gave them exact details for what their stuff was going to look like in Exodus. He was supposed to be the one who was keeping that up, that law, making sure that's what it looked like. And here he says, actually, Syria is our savior. Let's do what they do. Verse 17 King Ahaz, he cuts off the frames of the stands and removes the basin from them and he took down the sea from off the bronze oxen that were under it and he put it on a stone pedestal. I loved what one commentator said, like, we're not sure exactly what's going on here, but it's not the way it's supposed to be. Like, worship is being altered and it doesn't need to be altered. It wasn't broken because God handed it down. Here's what it's to look like. And Ahaz says, actually, I've got better counsel now. And because of those actions, he's bringing judgment and destruction, darkness upon himself and upon his nation that he's leading. And in a world of darkness, Isaiah speaks of a wonderful counselor. A wonderful counsel shines in the midst of darkness, doesn't it? Solomon comes into the picture, this one who asks God for wisdom, and God grants him wisdom. And what do you see? A dark situation is one of the first things that comes. Two prostitutes come, one One child comes with them because one of their children had died in the night. And they both come claiming that this child is their own. And Solomon, he shines the light of counsel and wisdom into the midst of this darkness. And you know what it says? 
It says of the people in 1 Kings chapter 3 that when they see what Isaiah, or how Solomon is reigning and ruling and his wisdom, here's what it does to him. All of Israel heard of the judgment the king had rendered and they stood in awe of the king. That's light in the midst of darkness. Because they, were, they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. In chapter 10, the, the wisdom of Solomon, it, it's world-renowned. A queen of Sheba comes and she sees uh, Solomon's life, his court, his people, and it takes her breath away, it says. In chapter 10, verse 5, it says, The food of his table, the seating of his officials, the attendants, his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. Light and darkness is going out, right? But I did not believe the reports until I came and with my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half of it was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I heard. The wisdom goes out. There's wonderful counselor in their midst. And a wise counselor and a wonderful counselor will shine in the midst of darkness. And unfortunately, Solomon didn't stay in that line of wisdom. But Isaiah promises a better one. A wonderful counselor who will shine. And God promises this wonderful counselor, one who's different than Solomon. Because he will also be not just wonderful counselor, but if you look back to the second title, he will be Mighty God. Mighty God. This is another name or title used for God himself in the Old Testament. In many texts it's used to speak of God. And it speaks of God's strength beyond, again, what humanity can muster up. It's strength seen, as Moses wrote, in creation where God, out of his might, creates all things with just his word. It's the might of a God who can redeem a people out from Egypt by his hand, mighty hand, and outstretched arm. That's almighty God. And all the other multiple deliverances that we see throughout the Old Testament, all of them, they can only be explained in one way, that this wasn't the work of Israel. They were a puny nation, full of puny people. This is the work of their almighty God. That's the God spoken of here when he says that he's a wonderful counselor and mighty God. So how then is a child to be born... You know, a son given that's, that's also a wonderful counselor and mighty God. Well, Isaiah doesn't tell us that. No explanation. He just keeps on going. He's mighty God and everlasting Father. Now, when we hear that, we, we kind of tend to probably hear it through Trinitarian lenses. But he's not speaking as he's going to be the, the Father, as if the Father of the Trinity. He, he's using what that name, Father, conveys. Kings were often thought of as a, a father figure to their nations, to their people. They were the ones who provided for them, pr protected them cared for them, or that's how they were to be. They were to be nurturers, providers, protectors. And here he says, here's one's going to come, and he's going to be this father. He's going to provide. He's going to protect. He's a mighty one to do these things. He, the, the word in everlasting father, that's shocking, isn't actually the word father. It's everlasting. That's new. Now, all the other kings, they might have been called father in some sense. They might have fulfilled that role, but they were never everlasting. Like, they ended uh, you can say the reign of this person and you could put a start date and an end date on all of them. This one, he says, actually is everlasting. He doesn't have an end date to his reign. So the child born is not going to have a temporal reign. He's not going to have an end date on his rule over things. He has an enduring reign. It's a forever reign. And he says also, as he keeps going, that this one is going to be called Prince of Peace. And Judah was a world... They lived in, they, they knew this world of, of turmoil and war constantly. 
I mean, from afar, from nearby. War and turmoil and strife are constant for them. And Isaiah speaks of a prince of peace. And when they have wanted that, this prince, this kingly figure, who's going to come in and, and bring in the quiet, blessed life, probably that they desired, a blessed life of peace. And it says, if you continue, like he's going to establish it and uphold it. Verse 7, of the increase of his government, his reign, his rule, and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of, of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So this peace, this Prince of Peace brings in, is a peace that none can come against and overcome. Because it's now an eternal reign of peace. Like he brings in this peace and no one else can win against it to put away that peace and make war and turmoil now the, the, the words of the day. It's peace that's the word of the day. It's peace that reigns. This, verse 7, is the answer to those Davidic promises, isn't it? Isaiah says, oh yeah, what God promised to David that one's going to sit on his throne and reign in his line, Second. Samuel verse seven or chapter seven verse sixteen. He's going to come. He's going to bring deliverance. He's going to have an eternal reign. Sit on that throne forever. And notice that if you are sitting on the throne forever, that that also means that no one can conquer you. That that kingdom then stands because you are in charge of that kingdom, and no one can conquer you. In other words, he's speaking of here a supreme king. We might call it a king of kings. Not. A king among other kings. Kind of in the hall of great kings. Now there's the hall of great kings and then there's the king of kings. There's the hall of great kings and then there's the supreme king. There's the kings that reigned and ruled for a time and then there's the everlasting king. And that's the one that Isaiah speaks of here. This is one set apart. His rule is not like others. Not only in duration, but also in quality. With justice and righteousness... He upholds, established and upholds the kingdom from this time forth and forevermore. So many of the kings, they were bought. They were swayed. They were coerced. They were moved. Not this one. He establishes a reign of peace. He establishes this righteousness and justice in his kingdom and he upholds it. And apparently he has the power to do so. No king, including David or Solomon, was able to realize the, the reign of this king that God promised in 2 Samuel. None of them were able to not only establish and uphold this reign of justice and righteousness and peace because they had failed and they live amongst a failed people. King after king failed, not only in duration, they all died, some mercifully so if you read the accounts, but the quality of their reign failed as well. And so with failed king after failed king after failed king leading them as a people, not only leading shortly but leading poorly, here Isaiah speaks of one who is going to reign and rule forever and it's going to be the best reign that you could think of. He's the prince of peace. He establishes peace. He upholds it with justice and righteousness. This is a relief. Breath of fresh air to them watching Ahaz bring their kingdom into destruction. It would have been such an ideal picture of the king to them. Ahaz in this picture has looked to Assyria to deliver them. 
But if we know history and we know the history of Judah, that deliverance was short-lived and quickly turned on them, surrounded their gates. And with judgment looming and a serious shadow stretching across the promised land, this prophetic word of hope and deliverance comes. And God's people who had eyes to see, could look around them and see the mess of the world. They could look to Israel at this point, probably already in exile to the Assyrians. Conquered people. They could look around and they could see the worship of the Assyrians itself and know that that is idolatrous. That those gods might have eyes, but they can't see. They might have ears, but they cannot hear. They could look around at Jerusalem and say, this is a mess. Our people are given over to idolatry. Judgment is coming. But they also could hear this word of hope from Isaiah. A word that goes out in their darkness to say, it won't always be this way because God himself will intervene. And that's what they are to do, to look and to hope in a person, a a child born, a, a son given, a kingly one who'd bring the end of oppression and war and bring in this reign of peace and justice and righteousness. Deliverance was to come, and it wasn't coming in the form of armies, or riches, or power, or international alliances. It was coming in the form of a child. And in a time of fear and uncertainty, with the Davidic line very much threatened, and the promises of God very much threatened and on the line, this promise of a child to deliver them probably sounded strange. They might have looked at it and thought, that's a weak plan. But look who's doing it. In verse 7, it says that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Judgment is coming upon the land, but God is not disinterested in his people. He's very much interested, and he's very much going to intervene, he promises. It's not because of them that he's going to intervene. It's not dependent upon them or, or kind of what's going on in the world. It's dependent upon him, and he's not a disinterested God. And so the, the prophetic word goes out and put before The people of Judah, God's people, again, putting this question out there. God is not disinterested. This is what he'll do. He's doing it because of him. So who are you going to trust? You're going to look to the world to deliver you? Or how about this one? How about this deliverance that I'm promising you? In a time of fear, ultimate deliverance was promised. But would they place their hope there? Is that who they'd trust? And I think that the same question faces us today. Us as individuals and us as a people. Fear and uncertainty abound in our world. Turmoil is everywhere. We look around at our own lives, at our nation, at the nations, and we know this. Like fear and uncertainty are everywhere and they're spreading. Who are we going to trust or what are we going to trust in the midst of that? Where are we placing our hope? Where are we looking for ultimate deliverance? Because in the midst of all that mess, it might look good to call on Assyria. It might look good to to find some armies. To to make sure we have the right international alliances. I'm obviously not speaking politically. I'm not suggesting any of those things. I'm saying that where our trust should be lies outside of what the world would offer. Isaiah... He spoke of deliverance promised in a child. But now, deliverance hasn't just been promised. It's been presented to us. 
I mean, is there any doubt as we read through Isaiah chapter 9, as we think about Advent, that Isaiah is pointing forward to the one we call Jesus Christ? Is there any doubt that Scripture intends for readers to see Jesus as this one who is the ultimate deliverer? And if there is doubt, let's let the Gospels bring a little clarity into that doubt when they speak of a child born and a son given. Look in in the book of Luke, chapter 1. This is Zechariah, his song, his prophecy, and here's what he's saying. That there's one coming from on high who's going to give light to those who sit in darkness. That sounds familiar. And in the sh- those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And he's going to guide our feet into the way of peace. Look at John chapter 1. Right? Light and darkness, that's where Isaiah kind of started. And John starts in the same place. He says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was what? The light of men, who we're going to find out in in chapter 1, they're in darkness. The darkness here in verse 5 doesn't win, though. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Look in the book of Luke, or or think about John chapter 8, verse 12. When Jesus comes and he says, I am intentionally, the light of the world, a world that's in darkness. Jesus is the one who is shining light to the darkness that the darkness can't overcome, has no power over that light. He steps in and the darkness flees. The people sitting in darkness have seen a great light. And the light of the world that shines is the life of men. And that life of men was born. Look in Luke chapter 1. Verse 31 and 32, here's what's promised to Mary. You're going to conceive in your womb. Normal, natural way of childbirth, right? And you are going to bear a son. He's going to be born. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. There's a born child who is also given, who is born, very natural, fully human, but is also this one that God has spoken of long ago that would reign in the line of David and have an eternal reign. This is one who is divine in God. This is deity in humanity. In chapter 2, verse 8, we've read it twice already. It's worth reading again. That where the shepherds were in this region, they were watching their herds in the field, and they were watching by night, darkness. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You're going to find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. In excelsis Deo, right? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Notice the elements here. There's light in darkness. There's joy. There's a birth. Something is born. There's a savior, a deliverer. There's a Davidic Messiah spoken of. Peace is proclaimed. In other words, Luke chapter 2, 8 through 14 is heavy with Isaiah chapter 9 elements, isn't it? They're all over the place. It's, it's in every you know, kind of corner of it. 
And this child born is also the son that is given. Remember chapter 1, verse 32. This is the son of the Most High, that the Lord will, will give him a reign and a rule. Right? This is the one who is born and given. This is God himself, then, in the person of Jesus, intervening in giving his own son. John draws this out so clearly, doesn't he? In John chapter 3, verse 16, God so loved the world that what does he do? He gives. He, he's giving a son. His only begotten son, the one and only son, this unique son, not like any other kind of son. That son is the one he's giving. He's giving the son because he loved the world, that any who believe in him shouldn't perish but have eternal life. For God didn't send, again, here it is, the son into the world to condemn the world, though they're in darkness, but to save the world, that the world might be saved through him. So it is God is the one who is giving. God is the one who is sending. And how does he do it? He doesn't do it for love. He does it from love. Doesn't that sound like the zeal of the Lord is going to do this? It's because of the zeal of the Lord, Isaiah 9, 7. And what kind of child and son does Jesus show himself to be? One who is a wonderful counselor. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, Jesus says that something greater than Solomon is here. As he goes out teaching, he says, this is written, but I tell you, I'm going to say to you, because I'm the word that was in the beginning with God and, with, and was God, like, I'm going to say to you, he taught. And as he taught, he, he awed the crowds with his sense of authority. They're like, no one ever talked like this. Who, who teaches like this? Who speaks like this? No one. But he seems to, like, my heart was burning within me. I don't even know what's going on because he teaches differently. He's a wonderful counselor. The Pharisees, the best of the best, they took the law and they tried to use it for their own means. And towards the end of Jesus' life, they're trying to trap him in his words. And so like, let's put all of the hardest questions that we can think of in front of him, questions that will trap anybody, that trap us every time. Let's ask him those things. And every single time, this wonderful counselor, he gets out of their trap and confounds them. You know what it says? That they, they left. They go in trying to trap him, and they left. Do you remember the word? Marveling. They left marveling. They're trying to trap him and kill him, accuse him, and they leave marveling because he's a wonderful counselor. He repeatedly confounds the world's wisdom. And while the world's wisdom fades away. His wisdom from the, this one who is the wonderful counselor stands forever. So let's question, are we getting counsel from the wonderful counselor? Where, where do you go for counsel? I hear a lot about news sources these days and, and fake news and make sure you're, where's your news source and if, is it reliable or not? Let's think about our counsel. Where is it coming from? Like are, we have the wonderful counselor. Is that where we're going for our counsel? Right, here's one through whom all things were created, who stands, lives as the wonderful counselor for us. He's the one who comes and he questions. He says, hey guys, what's it going to profit if you gain the world and lose your soul? That's a good counseling question. Or, hey, why do you fear man who can only kill your body when God can cast body and soul into hell? Don't fear that. Or, or how about this? Are you weary? And he invites as a counselor. Won't you abide in me? Abide in my word? And you're going to bear fruit. Apart from me, you can't do anything, but I'm inviting you in. You can abide in me and I'll be all that you need. Right? I'll give you everything. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is, is, is easy. My burden, it's, it's light. It's not like other yokes and burdens. Or how about this? Hey, when you pray, why don't you pray our Father in heaven? Or hey, your Father, he knows that you are concerned about food and clothing and what you're going to do today and tomorrow. He says, hey, he knows all those things. Seek, seek first the kingdom of God. And we have access to that wonderful counselor. Like we just opened the book, right? The, the Bible. And 
There's the wonderful counselor giving us counsel. Is that our source of counsel? Is that where we're going? And we're saying there's a wonderful counselor and he's spoken so much that we can't even wrap our heads around. Like, when we open it up and read it, there's wonderful counsel. We have this word. And, and beyond that, he says, you have the ear of God. You can pray to him. Like, he, he wants you to take all these things to him. Ask, ask, ask is the repeated command for his people. We have the wonderful counselor. Is that where we're going? This one is also almighty God who does what only God can do. Jesus steps into the earth and what does he do? He heals the blind. Yeah, it's amazing to heal those who have just gone blind. He heals those who are blind from birth. That never been seen before. Like, that seems unique. The paralyzed people come to him. He tells them to get up and walk. And also on top of that, he says, your sins are forgiven, right? Like, he, he takes those who are out in the wilderness, living among tombs, can't even be confined with chains, and he says, why don't you get out of there, demons? And they just go. Like, this is almighty God. He is the one who comes and he, and he says to storms, which are raging and threatening to kill him, and he says, stop, no more. We're done with that. This is the one who stares into the face of death, takes it on, drinks the cup down in full of death, and then comes out the other side. That's almighty God. Amen. And Matthew chapter 28, he comes and he declares, all authority is mine. I have all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the one who disarmed all rulers and authorities. He is the one who in his life, death, and resurrection put death itself in its grave. This is Almighty God. The worldly struggle that we face today is not a struggle, Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, with flesh and blood. So something more than human might is going to be needed for the battle. And we have Almighty God. Where do we draw strength from in the midst of our struggle in the world? That's, again, only, there's some flesh struggle in us and against things of the world, like not just flesh and blood. Where do we draw strength to that? It might seem right in the midst of all that's going on in our own lives and the struggles in us and outside of us. It might seem right to look for strength from outside, like I need money, that would solve my problems. Or if I had influence or power or the right kind of alliance, maybe that would solve my problem. But those are not almighty. We have Almighty God. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 says, Be strong in the Lord. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul tells Timothy, like, Be strengthened by the grace in Christ. We're not to look internally for strength. Why would we? We have Almighty God. We have one so, who is strong on our behalf. That's the one that we're to look to. And he's the one who strengthens us. Where our strengths and where our strength fails, as they will and as it will, we can remember what Paul remembered. Oh yeah, even if I'm shipwrecked, beaten, go hungry, have lots of food, I know that I can do all things through Christ who then strengthens me, right? When all others left Paul, he says, they all were gone, but there was one that stood beside him and strengthened him. Do you remember who that was? Almighty God, Christ himself, stood by him and strengthened him. He could do that because he's everlasting father, eternal, and the one who is going to provide, protect, and care for his people to the end. He's the one who provides all that's needed. He says, I'm the vine. Apart from me, you can't do anything, but I'm the vine. So everything that you need is coming, flowing through me, and it's going to come to you, and you can bear much fruit if you abide in this vine. He's the one who protects. He says, I'm the good shepherd. No one's going to take my sheep. Like, I'm going to lay my life down for him. I'm going to take it back up again. And by the way, if they're in my hand, no one can snatch them away. 
How dare they come after the Almighty Shepherd, right? That's not, it's not going to work. This is Almighty God we're talking about here. Everlasting Father, His sheep are going to be protected. He cares for them, lays His life down for them as a father cares for his children. He cries over them, weeps, wanting them to know and love Him. He does this all as the one who's going to then raise from the dead and continue as their high priest forever. Who, who is going to say that, that I'm going to secure for you not just like a, a partial redemption, a temporary redemption, an eternal redemption that's as secure as he is risen? That's what he gives to his people for those who trust in him. He's the prince of peace who on the night that he was born, what did we hear from the, from the angels? Peace on earth. And what does he go about proclaiming? He proclaims peace. Hours before his death, he extends out to his disciples Peace. In, in John chapter 14, verse 7, he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I like the world. We're not looking to worldly things to give us peace. We're, we're looking to the one who's everlasting Father, Almighty God, the one who's this wonderful counselor. That's where we get our peace from. He's the Prince of Peace. He gives peace unlike the world gives. And then he appears on the other side of the resurrection and kind of freaks them out a little bit. And what does he speak to them? Peace. Then he tells his church, like there's righteousness in me. Like if you trust in me, you have righteousness that's now your own. And guess what this righteousness secures with God? We just read it in Romans 5. Peace with God. Peace. Here's the Prince of Peace. It happens through Jesus, the one who is the Prince of Peace. And as he is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father and Prince of Peace, he is the one who has an eternal reign on the throne of David. You, you read Ephesians chapter 1. You should read this and reread it and reread it over and over again. In chapter 1, verse 20, he's talking about Christ. He was raised from the dead, seated at his right hand in the heavenly places, which is the right hand of the throne, an eternal throne. He's far above all rule and authority, like Hall of Fame down here. Christ up here, like that's where he's at, reigning and ruling, uh, above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. There's an everlasting reign there. And he put all things, not some things, all things under his feet and gave him head over, again, all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He is going to establish and uphold an eternal reign of peace with justice and righteousness that cannot be overturned or threatened or uh, uh, challenged in the least. How is he going to do this? Not by outwardly conforming people to some acts of righteousness. How do you get a kingdom full of righteousness? Well, you change people from the inside out and you reign and rule over them. And this is what Christ comes to do. He comes to inwardly transform us so that now we can be amongst his people as this people who are living in righteousness and justice forever. And one commentator he, he sums this up so well that I'm going to read this to you. This is John Calvin. He says, now to apply, speaking of Isaiah 9, to apply this for our own instruction. Whenever any distrust arises and all means of escape are taken away from us, whenever, in short, it appears to us that everything is in a ruinous condition, let us recall to our remembrance that Christ is called wonderful because he has inconceivable methods of assisting us and because his power is far beyond what we are able to conceive. When we, meet, when we need counsel, let us remember that he is the counselor. When we need strength, let us remember that he is mighty and strong. When new terrors spring up suddenly every instant, and when many deaths threaten us from various quarters, let us rely on that eternity of which he is with good reason called the Father. And by the same comfort, let us learn to soothe all temporal distresses. When we are inwardly tossed by various tempests, 
And when Satan attempts to disturb our consciences, let us remember that Christ is the Prince of Peace and that it is easy for him quickly to allay our uneasy feelings. Thus will these titles confirm us more and more in the faith of Christ and fortify us against Satan and hell itself. Church, would you be fortified this morning? If we're honest, I think the question of where we're going to put our trust and our hope when we look around in this world, it still lingers, doesn't it? Because some of this counsel seems like it fails. Some of this might seem like in light of the world is little. It's unapparent. Sometimes it seems like there's no protection and that peace escapes us. And we think about that we're talking about a great eternal reign, a strong reign. Where is it? But Jesus' birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection, in the world's eyes, those things still don't look like much. They look at those things and they say, there's weakness, there's folly. But we know better. We apply Isaiah chapter 9, and we're fortified. But again, we need to ask who are we trusting? What will we trust? Where's our hope? What are we looking to? Where are we looking for ultimate deliverance? Let's let Isaiah and the season of Advent point the way. Because in Isaiah, deliverance is promised, but in Jesus, deliverance is presented. During Advent, let's receive him. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for being a God of promise. And we thank you for being a God who fulfills every one of them. Even in the garden, Lord, we began to see the promise of a Savior take shape. At the point of our failure and sin, Lord, you were there to promise us your presence if we would only trust you, Lord. God, forgive us when we look around and we see the waves of temptation and the turmoil in this world and we, we call on other kings to deliver us. We look to other means and to other methods, Lord, because we choose not to trust you and yet you are so gracious and kind to remind us that you haven't moved, that your promise of everlasting life, deliverance from death, Lord, still stands in spite of our unbelief, in spite of our sin, in spite of our propensity to, to look around us for other things to deliver, God. You stand as our one true deliverer. God, I pray that this season would remind us of that truth, that as we reflect on the coming of our Lord, that we would see that promise fulfilled, that we would see the future promise of the second coming, and that we would know without a doubt that that too will be fulfilled, that one day we will see our greatest enemy fully and finally put down, that you will lay death itself in this grave, 
God, help us to believe. Help us to trust. There's so much history that we can look back on. There's so much in your word that reminds us of your faithfulness over and over again to your people. Thank you for coming to save us. Thank you for being our deliverer, for delivering on all your promises, for giving us your spirit to remind us of that, to walk with us and guide us and counsel us in our daily lives, God. Help us to lean on you and trust in you. In Christ's name, amen.